0: If you come in with a really formal birth plan that says, I don't want forceps, I don't want an epidural, I don't want a C section, I don't want this, I don't want that, inevitably those are all going to end up happening because it's just like this weird Murphy's Law thing, you know? <laughs> so the best thing you can do is kind of go in there with, you know, the expectation of a healthy mom and a healthy baby and that trusting your providers, advocating for yourself, listening to your gut, like, you know, asking questions, being an active participant so that you feel well-informed. And, and then I think that's the best you can do, because if you do go in with a really hard lined plan, you might come out disappointed. And that's, that's really upsetting for
1: sure. Mm-hmm. What gets us through this crazy hockey journey is our amazing community of women inspired by our online network. Breaking the ice is a platform created to connect us even more. As we share our stories, our passions, our tips, tricks, do's and don'ts for all things hockey, and so much more. For hockey expats, by hockey expats. So lace them up and tune in for a new episode every Wednesday.
0: Nicole, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to um, yeah, sharing all this information.
1: So will you tell me a little bit about what you do and how you got into it?
0: Um, yeah, so I'm a labor and delivery nurse. I um, previously, I actually worked uh, as a kinesiologist and then I went back to school um, for um, nursing, and discovered how much I like loved women's and infant health and wound up in labor and delivery right off the bat and absolutely loved it. Uh, so yeah, I, I, I've worked in high-risk obstetrics, uh, low-risk obstetrics, postpartum, and then recently with COVID, we have um, all been kind of taking on some other roles as well. So I also worked at a well child clinic where we do uh, checkups on kids from two months up to usually age four and immunizations, just routine immunizations. And then I also this summer did
1: uh, COVID contact tracing. Oh, wow. Okay. So you do it all. (laughs) (laughs) And as you know, I have like a million questions for you. I remember after I had my son, I remember saying to my midwife, how do you go home and turn it off with your job? It can be very like high intensity, right? Like it's a lot of emotions from like a woman's standpoint, even from like the dad and just like birth in general, how do you go home and like compartmentalize your job?
0: Yeah, it definitely kind of depends on the shift I would say. So the thing I love most about labor and delivery is oftentimes you kind of walk out of there and you're like, I just, we just had a baby, you know, like, and I just brought life into the world. And so you kind of like skip on out of there. And I, I used to say like, I feel like I'm filled with the joys of spring. Like I I really loved that. But then obviously there are other days, especially when we don't have um, some good outcomes, like that definitely comes with labor and delivery is some of the the sadder outcomes. Um, And so those days are a lot harder and you definitely lean a lot on your nursing friends. Um, Those are, yeah, some of my closest friends for sure. We spend a lot of time together drinking wine kind of thing on our days off um even girls i went to school like nursing school with um and my poor partner i feel like uh he has to he hears a lot of a lot of stories that he does not want to know about uh, <laughs> Yeah, like, please some stop days are, about- <laughs> yes he's like please stop talking about vaginas I yeah just, I don't <laughs> that's know. exactly
1: what i was gonna say <laughs> that's so funny so where are you from i'm from calgary in canada Okay. And then you're, you guys are playing in Munich. So are you able to just go home and kind of pick it back up when you are in the off season? Yeah, exactly. I'm super grateful for this career,
0: um, in this hockey life because we can definitely kind of just, I I can just kind of bounce back and forth. So I'm casual there. So when I go home, I just pick up shifts and I can, um, you know, work as much or as little as I want to, which is huge.
1: Yeah, that's perfect. Well, I wish I had you on sooner before I had my son so I could ask you all my highly anticipated questions because I'm sure a lot of people can relate, but I was definitely someone who tried to have like everything figured out in terms of what contractions would feel like, water breaking, all of that stuff. And something I found really funny was a lot of people would say to me, your first baby is going to be 10 days late or your first baby, you're going to be in labor for 20 hours. And for me, both were not true. I was a week early and my labor was five hours start to finish. So I would love to start off asking you a little bit about genetics and how this affects your labor and delivery.
0: Yeah. That's super interesting. And you know, you know, those games that you play when somebody's pregnant and expecting where you have to guess like what day, what Mm weight, like what they be overdue. Um, that sort of thing. People are always like, Oh, Nicole, like you're the L and D nurse. You must have a good guess. And I don't because everybody is so unique and so different. So there's no like, Oh, it's your first baby. It's definitely 10 days late or it's definitely at 39 weeks. Um, it does definitely kind of flip flop all around. But in terms of genetics, there definitely is a trend for, um, you know, for similar birth experiences within family members. So if you know that your mom had three C-sections all for a particular reason, that might be something um, that that might be more likely to happen for you. Like we do kind of always ask about that, you know, your sister's birth experience, your mom's birth experiences, that sort of thing. Um, but really the genetics part is, is not always super clear. The only thing that I can state, there is a definite correlation between genetics and um, this disease is for preeclampsia, um, which, It's kind of a a scary condition that can happen in pregnancy where it's characterized by things like high blood pressure and, um, you know, some other side effects and symptoms, but that one is extremely genetic, uh, like about 50% between siblings.
1: Mm, So, um,
0: yeah, so that one, you know, that's always a good thing to tell your provider if if you know, you're like, Oh, my sister had troubles with her blood pressure and and had to be induced early or or had to go on all, um, all these medications like magnesium, you know, that, that sort of thing, then, um, that's worth telling your provider about for sure. Uh, but that's kind of the only one that I can think of that has a really strong genetic correlation.
1: Yeah. Would you say that it's, could it be genetic from the dad side too? So say like People say, what kind of um, labor did your mom have, right? And like they compare mm-hmm. it to that, but could it come also from like your dad's mom?
0: So what I can say for sure is that pre- pregnancies and births, deliveries will happen differently depending on the partner. So depending on like the baby's dad. So if you really? have one child with one partner and then you have another child with a different partner, you're... it it might be completely different. And so if you have preeclampsia, for example, with the first partner, it doesn't, you're less likely to have it with the new partner.
1: No way. I had no idea that was like a thing. (laughs) Yeah. I I
0: don't know, like in terms of like the pregnant woman's father and like his side of the family, I'm not sure, but definitely like the the father of the baby for sure can have, um,
1: uh, you know, an effect, I guess, on... On the outcomes for sure. And so what about gender that comes from the dad's side, right? Like the partner side. Uh, so it's just that like the partner either contributes like
0: an X chromosome or a Y chromosome. Um, it's not like a, a trend in the sense that like, if the father of the baby has a lot of boys in his family, this baby is more likely to be a boy. When we do, we do stats every single month on our deliveries at the hospital. And it's, always, every single month, basically 50, 50, you know, it might be like 49% and 51%, mm-hmm. but every month we have 50, 50 boys and girls. Yeah. I haven't noticed kind of that, a trend where if the, the dad has a bunch of boys in the family that this person's more likely to have a boy. It's um, yeah. I, I mean, in terms of genetics, yeah, the dad c- contributes either an X or a Y, which determines either a boy or a girl,
1: but I think that's just at random. So, okay. So this might be a myth then.
0: It might be. I mean, I'm not like a geneticist or (laughs) anything like that. So like, that's kind of my limited understanding of how, you know, the gender is determined, but maybe there is more to it that I'm
1: missing. (laughs) Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, okay. So then this was an audience question, which I loved this one. What are some truths and myths about the second baby with timing, size and labor? Yeah, definitely. So a
0: second baby almost always um, results in a a better, easier, quicker labor and birth for sure. Um, You know, generally, yeah, generally it just kind of goes a lot smoother. Third babies, however, that's kind of a wild card. They, (laughs) they, they seem to, either go one way or the other and often they cause a whole bunch of drama um, in the hospital Um, (laughs) so third babies I'm not so sure but second babies yeah definitely you can expect kind of an easier faster labor generally a few like a little bit bigger often quite similar though I would say
1: what makes it more quick than the first one
0: it's just that everything's kind of prepped and primed and your cervix never goes back to the exact same way that it was before you were, um, before you gave birth. So yeah, it, it kind of stays a little bit dilated. So we call that a multibos and it's, it's just that, you know, your cervix never fully goes back to that same really hard, closed, long cervix. It, it, it does go back, but it kind of always stays a little bit more ready to go and ready to open up. Um, and then also just that birth canal, it's kind of already had something pass through it. So
1: that part generally goes faster as well. Interesting. Okay. So while we're on the myths and the truths, someone also asked what are certain foods during pregnancy that you might be a myth or might be true that you can eat? Hmm.
0: So that you can eat. So one of my girlfriends was talking about how during her pregnancy, people were like yelling at her because she was eating peanuts. And they said, Oh, <laughs> if, you, if you eat a lot of peanuts during your pregnancy, your baby's going to be born with a peanut allergy. Um, that's not true. Um, in fact, there there's more research coming out now about actually eating like a wider variety and, of foods and especially high allergen foods you know during uh your pregnancy and during breastfeeding to help reduce the risk of having any um of having any allergies for your child so I would say yeah that's a myth the whole allergy one yeah there's been a lot of research that's gone into that uh the other one that I will just say um And it's not necessarily during your pregnancy, but um, castor oil is one that you hear about people using to help them go into labor. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that one definitely, it definitely can help you go into labor, but that's because it's a laxative. So it causes cramping and diarrhea, which, you know, the cramping sensation will also go through your uterus and cause cramping which, you know, are basically like contractions. That's mm-hmm. what contractions are. They're just cramps that are bigger and painful <laughs> that are <laughs> um, awful. <laughs> yeah. Are really not fun. Um, yeah. So, so yeah, I'd say castor oil, I would, I would not necessarily recommend because it causes a lot of dehydration because of the diarrhea and it, it's not necessarily going to put you into true labor. It might just kind of cause you a lot of discomfort.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: Um, what other ones are there that people or like miss, or can you think of any from, from pregnancy? Yeah.
1: Well, I'm, I'm, I'm still mad about one is deli meat. And I don't know how, and that's the thing is I feel like some, some of these, you know, research or whatever, it's like, they say that because they don't want you eating it every single day. But some of this stuff, I'm like, I was craving a turkey sandwich Mm -hmm. while I was pregnant. And I just felt like this this poll that like, no, don't do it. Don't do it. But I'm like, is one fine. Can I have one turkey sandwich? Yeah. Yeah. So the risk with deli meat is of
0: getting certain bacterias that would make you really sick. Um, like, like, I think it's listeria. I think that's what it's called. Um, but yeah, that's, that's the risk. Right. And that is not good for, for your baby. If you were to get something like that from, from those meats, but generally speaking, you know in the world we live in that that risk is is fairly low so yeah i i don't you know i wouldn't encourage people to eat deli meats while they're pregnant but if if you want to have one here and there it's probably not that bad um or not that risky i guess um you know that being said and i guess i should should have given this disclaimer a little bit earlier is that i'm a nurse so i can't give medical advice um so you know those sort of things definitely just ask your physician and, or your midwife, like, is it okay if I eat a deli sandwich, I'm craving it. Like, I just want one kind of thing. You can definitely ask them and they'll, you know, give you, give you a clear answer that's specific to, to your, you know, personal pregnancy and your journey and and their care and what they expect.
1: Yeah, for sure. And thank you for saying that. That's a good reminder. And I will make sure to put that in the caption as well, just before people listen to the episode. And I'll put it in the show notes that that. To consult your physician and that you're not giving medical advice just so that's very clear to everyone yes, yes, yeah definitely what I do um
0: yeah I, I should have said that at the beginning is yeah i can't give any medical advice um definitely always talk to your physician and or your midwife first and foremost listen to them um the other thing that i wanted to say is that every woman and every couple's experience is totally unique and your perception of that experience is totally valid So if, if a woman feels like she had a really traumatic birth, that sort of thing, if that's how you feel, then that's valid. And that's how you feel. And those feelings, you know, need to be worked through and debriefed with your physician or with whoever, whoever's beneficial to you. Um, But definitely, you know, just a reminder that like what we're talking about today are kind of just very generalized, you Mm -hmm. know, Mm -hmm yes, statements or, um, recommendations or perceptions on my part, but you know, trust, trust in yourself and, and, um, whatever your, whatever your experiences is, is your experience and that's valid and don't let anybody tell you differently.
1: Yeah. I love that. And I feel like so many people try to like compare pregnancies and compare like labor and delivery. And like mm-hmm. you said, it's just, everybody is so different. There's really no way to indicate whether you know, your experience is going to be like someone else's. Um, so that, that is a good point. I, you know, I, I think that we're all guilty of doing that because it's oh, such, especially yeah. for your first pregnancy and first delivery. Like, I feel like you just literally have no effing clue what to expect. Right. So you <laughs> want to get all the facts and try to be like, well, how is this going to happen? When is this yeah. going to happen? Where is this going to happen? And you just yeah. don't
0: know. <laughs> no. And we, we live in a very like black and white world. And a lot of people, come from careers that are very kind of like cut and dry. I mean, maybe not so much in the hockey world. We're kind of like, we never know what's going (laughs) to happen, but you know, just in general. And so the thing that's really frustrating about obstetrics is that it's not black and white. It's very gray. And, you know, I see it on my patients' faces all the time. They're looking at when I'm like, you know, everybody's experience is different. Everybody's experience is unique. You know, it could be this, it could be that. And they're like, kind of looking at me like, come on, like give me something. You know? <laughs> um, but it really, really is. It really depends. Like every single thing that we do on that unit can go one way or
1: another easily or a million different variations in between. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've seen it all <laughs> <laughs> from just going back and doing my research of like, what are some early signs of labor? For me, I lost my mucus plug about two weeks before I went into labor and then like, I definitely had like, sorry, TMI for everyone, but I had like diarrhea. What are some ways that you can naturally induce labor? So side note, also something for me that I was doing a ton was walking. And I was also drinking that raspberry leaf tea, I think it's called like three or four times a day. Um, But what are some other things? Yeah, so
0: definitely both of those. I would say walking is, you know, kind of the number one thing we suggest. The raspberry tea, absolutely sex. <laughs> so there's um, like certain hormones that are released in male sperm, and like when you are having sex, that will actually like act kind of on your cervix and your uterus to start to stimulate some, some, um, you know, cervical change and some contractions. So yeah. Everyone's different, whatever, whatever works for you. Um, but yeah, those are some things you can try for sure. Um, and I did, I did listen to your podcast about your birth experience um, and kind of what you were just describing with the the diarrhea for a few days before and just kind of knowing that it was coming is it's very common. Um, the diarrhea especially. So it's basically your body's way of like flushing everything out along that path, because when your baby's head's coming down through your birth canal, it's like pressing right along your rectum the whole way. So it's your, you like the diarrhea that happens in the days leading up to it, which is kind of a good sign that maybe things are starting to happen and, you know, get ready kind of thing. That's definitely, definitely common.
1: Yeah. That's so interesting. And so for like the sex, that would be the sperm would initiate maybe something, With labor. That's the part that that people suggest that. Yeah. Another question, water leaking versus water breaking. So obviously you just said, you listened to my birth story. My water was leaking and I feel frustrated looking back on it because I'm like, they should have listened to me because I had a feeling. And I do think it's easy to like, overthink these things, right? Like, because you want to look for any sign, but I knew something wasn't right. And I felt like I get kept getting kind of like turned away and just to keep an eye on it kind of thing. But realistically looking back, I should have had him probably six days before I did, because it can be really dangerous if he doesn't come out when that's happening. So for those that might be pregnant and listening, or just might be curious about the situation, what is the difference between water leaking and water breaking and how common is this?
0: Yeah. So definitely um, a very frequent reason why we see people come into triage is is my water broken or did I just pee myself or like what's going on with that um and the test that we do in triage for the broken water um, is not super accurate so I used to work at Mount Sinai in Toronto and we would like rarely even even do it because it's it's not it's not a perfect picture of it did it break or not um And yeah, we do it more at the hospital I work at in Calgary now, but it's, it, unfortunately, there's no perfect test to know is the water definitely broken or not. And you're absolutely right that it can be dangerous if, um, you know, because back basically once the water's broken, there's a vector for bacteria to come up and into your, into, into like the amniotic sac, into your uterus, infect you and infect the baby, uh, with, all sorts of different things so it's definitely a challenge for sure and it's kind of a case-by-case basis in in triage on what they what they recommend um but yeah so what likely happened in your case and what we see I don't know how often like I don't have a particular percentage but often what happens is what we call a high leak and so basically if you think about like a water balloon and popping a water balloon obviously that's like big and dramatic and very much like the movies your water's popped your water's (laughs) broken there's water everywhere but if you think about like a soccer ball that gets a little a little leak in it or something and it just kind of is like always slowly getting deflated um that's kind of more like what a high leak is and so it can actually be like a like a little rupture in the amniotic membrane, which is your water. Like that's what's holding your water in. Um, it can be a little tear that happens in that. And then you just kind of have this constant like leaking that's coming out through it, a small little like tear essentially. And so all that, all that water is just kind of slowly leaking. And it might happen a few times where you have kind of like a, a bit of a bigger gush and you're not totally sure. Um, And what we look for in triage is kind of like a pooling. So we'll often keep these women in triage for a while and, and just see if there's a pooling happening, pooling of amniotic fluid and we can test that. And sometimes we'll do the test a few times, but there's no perfect way to know is, did you pee yourself? Is this, you know, a high leak or is your water broken? Is it not? It's definitely not always super clear. So. Mm -hmm. The only recommendation I can have is like, you did the, you did the absolute right thing and trusting yourself and going in and getting it checked and kind of, you know, messaging your midwife and being like, you know, yeah, advocating for yourself. Um, and you know, you do really just have to have to trust that, trust your gut in those situations and really advocate for yourself. And yeah, it's, it's Mm -hmm. definitely not super clear. Um necessarily when it happens.
1: Yeah. And it was funny because when it actually did test positive in the day that they I got induced, she was like surprised. And I almost felt like really empowered because yeah. I was like, yeah, hell yeah, I knew it. And I told you and, it, and I was right. <laughs> it felt good. But yeah, it's definitely scary sometimes when you feel like they're, because I'm sure that they get calls all the time. And they're like, yeah, it's probably not that because I don't think it's like super common, I guess, for it to leak versus yeah, breaking? Cause I don't even think your water breaking is super. I mean, it's common, but it's not, not everybody's water breaks.
0: No. Yeah. So, you know, breaking the water is a really common either induction or augmentation method that we use where we actually physically break the water, which is a super easy thing to do. Like you just poke it and it pops. Um, but yeah, so yeah, it's, I don't know, like exactly what, you know, how often we have this this kind of ongoing leaking sensation, how often we have a dramatic water break, how often we do it ourselves. I do have stats on that, I guess, on how often we do it ourselves. Yeah, the high leak one, I, I actually do get asked that quite often from my girlfriends. You know, is this a leak? Is this my water breaking? Or did I pee myself in bed last night? And the only thing I, you know, I just always tell them to go get it checked out because you, you have to do an assessment physically in person. So mm-hmm. yeah, if, if anybody's ever wondering about that, yeah, just kind of, just kind of go in and don't be embarrassed to go into triage multiple times and say, I don't know if my water broke, you know, because people usually in triage will say that, you know, they'll be like super embarrassed to say, I don't know if it broke or not. And they feel like they should know for sure. Like oh yeah, it's obvious, but it's really not always obvious. Mm -hmm. And so definitely just go in and get it checked out. Don't be embarrassed to say, you know, if, if it didn't break and it's just pee or it's just discharge, that's no big deal. Like there's not
1: nothing to be embarrassed about in our, Mm -hmm. on our unit. I think there is a very clear difference between just discharge and your water leaking because that's how I could differentiate that. That's what it was from my own personal experience. Like it was just clear. It was very stretchy. It was a lot. It was every time I wiped, it was like, I mean, I felt like there, it was just coming out of me like nonstop. And I I just was like, this is not, this is not just like common end of pregnancy discharge.
0: Yeah. And that's also a common misperception is that people think when your water breaks, it's hundred percent of the water is now out of that pool and that's it. But in fact, it keeps leaking the entire time, the entire time that you're in labor and that you're on our unit, there's, there's going to be multiple gushes, or there's going to be a kind of a continuous leak that's going on. Um, so you're kind of like wet down there the whole time. And that can mm-hmm. be really uncomfortable.
1: So for me, because that happened my first baby, is that any, any indication that that would happen for the second, or is there no, no correlation between those two?
0: I'm gonna say no. That there is no correlation. M- you know, maybe there is some research out there that that would say there's you know X percent of chance of that happening for you again. But no, I, I haven't personally noticed a trend like that at all.
1: Okay, that's good to know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure I will uh, do crazy research whenever that day comes, just to drive yeah, myself crazy. I've like I've we'll never that. heard of that. Like I've never heard somebody like a physician or
0: somebody say oh well that happened her last time so it's definitely going to happen this time like mm-hmm, if you come yeah. in and you say this is what happened to me last time it feels exactly the same i'm, I'm i think maybe it's the same thing that happened last time then we're definitely going to you know trust that perception of yours and you know investigate further but i don't think that there's like a definite causation, correlation, anything.
1: I feel like I could ask you a million questions and things keep just like spit firing into my mind um, about everything, but so. I love talking about this. So Okay, good. <laughs> So I feel like you hear a lot of things like when someone finds out they're pregnant and they find out if they're having a boy or girl before they find out the sex of the baby, they try to anticipate what the gender is based on their symptoms or based on like what they're craving or based on how they're feeling. Is there truth to that you feel like shit with girls and you feel better with boys or that you crave really sweet stuff with girls and you crave more like salty like carbs with boys?
0: Yeah. So, I mean, what we learn, what we're taught is that no, there's, there is no definitive uh, correlation between, you know, certain characteristics that moms are experiencing and, um, and the gender, the sex of the baby. But the one that I have found the most often to be true is the shape of the belly, but not until you're further along. Like, you know, I, I couldn't judge that at 12 weeks. Um, but you know, later, Mm -hmm. later, um, in pregnancy, third trimester sort of thing, whether you're carrying low or carrying high, I'm, I do find that that one can be fairly accurate. I did work with one obstetrician who was right all the time. She had been
1: wrong twice in her whole career of guessing the gender, guessing the gender. Yeah. Wow. I, you know, I find myself to be very good at guessing my friend's genders. I don't know why I feel like I'm always right. I'm like, okay, you're having a boy, you're having a girl every time. I feel like I should, I should go into some sort of (laughs) business. Yeah. So what's your trick? Like what do you assess or what do you find works for you? Oh, this is a fun question. So I feel like I sense more the energy of the of the mom. Like, I don't know. Like if I just like see her, see a picture of her, like it's literally nothing to do with like how they look physically, but I'm like, you're having a girl. Like, even if they tell me they're pregnant, I get this like really strong feeling, whether it is. And I honestly, like, I'm not even saying this, like I've been wrong like a few times. It's pretty wow, cool. Wow. That is so cool. Very, except very for, cool. Except for myself. That was, I That's was insane. like, yeah, I was like 98% sure. I was like, it's a girl, 1000% so my husband thought so too. So when we did our little like gender reveal, it's just the two of us and we found out it was a boy. We were like, what? Like it- you're like looking at the envelope multiple times. Like, wait, are we
0: reading that? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And <laughs> I, I will definitely say that the mom is usually right. So if the like, you know, often the mom will be like, oh, I'm hundred percent sure I'm having a girl. I don't even need to have do a gender reveal. I'm hundred percent sure. Um, well, you know, when she's like in labor and we're kind of making small talk about you, know what do you think you're having? Sort of thing. The mom's usually right, but that's really? so interesting.
1: Yeah, I guess you might have more of an idea as you get bigger. I I think it's it's like 50-50, right? When you're like so early on, and if you're finding out the gender <laughs> at 12 weeks or whatever, I guess it's like yeah, you're 50% boy, you're 50% girl, and like there's no true indication besides I guess when your belly starts to get different shapes so you say it's like more of a they say isn't it for boy it's more of like a basketball kind of shape and for yeah. girls, it's what's the kind
0: of, kind of lower like it's like a I don't know I don't know what I would call it I get like a dollop like a like a carries lower and, and definitely yeah good. I definitely find that one when I use that to judge a belly it's usually usually right um but yeah, no, I mean, the only true way to know is, I guess, an ultrasound or the birth. So, <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah,
0: exactly. So, do you,
1: are you in there ever for like ultrasounds and stuff when people come in?
0: Yeah, we will sometimes do bedside ultrasounds to confirm the position of the baby, like confirm that their head down or which way they're facing in your pelvis. Um, when I worked in high risk obstetrics, we would do all sorts of cool things. And there was, you know, a lot of ultrasounds involved in that. Um, but in, I'm not, I don't work at a, at a clinic, like an obstetric clinic where you go for your checkups and your routine ultrasounds, I only would be involved in ultrasounds that happen, you know, at the bedside kind of thing.
1: Mm -hmm. Okay. So now we have to get into (laughs) what we were talking about before poop during labor, which is so (laughs) funny because for those listening, Nicole was like, is it okay if I like say that? And I'm like, yes, because people were asking about it and, oh man, this is like such a topic that people are so scared of happening and I don't know for sure that I did but I'm pretty positive I did like no one says anything to you because you're literally like pushing a baby out but I mean I could I could tell
0: (laughs) (laughs) so yeah absolutely it's definitely something that comes up pretty much with every patient that we have like everyone always wants to know like you know, am I going to poop? I don't want to poop. I don't want my partner to have me like, see me poop. Um, like, am I pooping? Like sometimes women will be like screaming that while they're pushing out their baby. Am I pooping? Um, it's yeah. Like there's a lot of poop talk that happens, um, on our unit for sure. What I usually tell, you know, my girlfriends or my patients, you know, number one, if you're, um, if you're pushing in the right place, you're likely going to push out a little bit of poop. And as your providers, we're like excited about that. We're like, good job. You're pushing in the right spot. Keep it up. That Mm -hmm. sort of thing. Um, we're never like, Oh my God, girls. Also, it's not like you're having like a full on poop. Like you do when you go to the bathroom, like (laughs) it's not like a whole, whole thing happening. It's like, you're squeezing out like just a little bit. Right. So, and we kind of like, there's a lot going on down there. There's usually amniotic fluid and like blood and gunk and all sorts of stuff. And we're kind of like wiping up that area the whole time while we're, while you're Mm -hmm. pushing. And so we just kind of like wipe it away, wipe it away and like toss it. Like, honestly, it's not even anything that I notice. Like at the end of a birth, when I come out of the room I'm not thinking like, oh yeah, she pooped. It's like, (laughs) don't even, I don't remember. If I bump into you on the street, I'm not going to remember. Like it's, it's so common, but it's also not so common that it happens every single time. Like sometimes people will be like, oh, I for sure did. And they, and they didn't. Um, But yeah, I mean, there's nothing to be ashamed
1: about. (laughs) (laughs) And I will say that's such a anticipated thing. Like, am I going to poop? But when you are in labor, you do not give a shit anymore. You are just like, get this thing out of me. I want to be done with this. And yeah. you do not care if you poop. You do not care if anyone sees it. And I feel like everyone was really good about like cleaning everything up. You know, they weren't like announcing to the whole 100%. hospital room yeah. anything. So um no, never.
0: Yeah. <laughs> like we just kind of like st- whoop it away. And, and again, like, it's not like you're having a full on bowel movement situation.
1: Yeah.
0: It's just, like, a little bit, we just kind of like, yeah, wipe it away. And it's all good. Like, yeah, definitely no biggie at all.
1: <laughs> something I thought was strange. And you'll have to tell me if this is just like the norm, but something I was not anticipating was, and this might just be a Europe thing. I, they were asking me to like, hold my own legs when I was pushing him out. Like I labored mostly on my side. Like I tried pushing out my side, but then they wanted to switch positions. So like about halfway through, I went on my back, which was like super painful, but then Mm -hmm. they had me pull my knees into my chest, hold my knees. in, And when I was pushing, they wanted me to like push my head forward and like pull my legs in. And I was like, are there like stirrups my feet could go in? Like
0: for sure. Um, yes, that is normal. So the reason why is that it creates a more effective push. Um, if you kind of hold the back of your thighs you know you're you're like i'm trying to give people a visual here but i also <laughs> like like demonstrate it to my patients like i'll literally lay down on the floor next to them and be like okay like this is what you gotta do um but yes yeah, so you're kind of like hips are nice and open you've got your legs up flexed in front of you and you're holding the back of your thighs and then when a contraction comes you take a big breath in And you kind of like pull your legs towards you and you crunch yourself up. Kind of like if you were doing a sit up, but you're also, you know, it's not all abs. You're allowed to like use your arms to pull yourself up on your legs. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, your head comes off the pillow, your shoulders come off the pillow and you're up and you're holding your legs. That being said, the legs being really heavy thing is extremely normal, especially if you have an epidural. If you have an epidural, you have like no control over your legs. They just feel like dead weight. So that's where, um another provider, like another nurse, a second nurse will often come in and help. And also the partner. Mm -hmm. So baby daddy or whoever the partner is like the birth partner, um, doula, whoever you have, or another midwife, um, will help with, with those, you know, a combination of these people will help to hold the legs up. now they're not supposed to like be pushing your legs for you, you know, towards your core or anything like you're still supposed to be pulling yourself up yourself for those contractions but definitely in terms of supporting the leg of the weight and especially in between contractions that's kind of what their role is to
1: help mm-hmm. um yeah you're, you're bringing me back like as you were describing that i was literally like, envisioning envisioning myself doing it again like that was like that was a very like accurate good description Tr- you're trying to figure out like kind of a rhythm with the mm-hmm. contractions. And it's like just another thing that you have to do. But I guess that does make sense of the reason why, like, I didn't, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah, exactly. So you're kind of, it's, it's just a really effective kind of crunch to, to get your uterus and all those muscles to push down and also for the shape of your pelvis. Um, another thing with that birth position and, you know, a lot of the holistic health, stuff says, you know, don't push on your back. It's called lithotomy position. Um, you know, people will say it's unnatural and they'd rather be like squatting that sort of thing for delivering their baby, which is totally fair. Like squatting is a great position to deliver a baby, but if you have an epidural, you don't have great control over your legs. Um, we're worried about you falling. We're worried about you injuring your hips and you can't, you can't feel it. Right. Cause you're, they're frozen. Um, and lithotomy is also, Uh, There's a lot of, you know, history that goes into that on kind of, you know, male practitioners and wanting everything perfect for them and their view and and that sort of thing, which is like a whole other conversation Mm. to have about like the history of obstetrics, but people will often be like, this feels so unnatural to kind of, you're not totally like flat on your back. Like you're kind of sitting up a little bit, Mm -hmm. you've got your legs up, your hips up. Um, But it actually is a really good angle through your pelvis uh, for that baby to descend that way. So if you sit up, like sometimes people really wanna sit directly up, like you you were sitting in a chair. And if you think about it, that angle just gets so much more narrow when you're sitting up that high versus Mm -hmm. if you're kind of like leaning back, like if you were in a lounger Um, so that's kind of the reason for the positioning and your midwife or your nurse will, will help to guide that. And, and like, we're always kind of looking down there, um, doing checks, like with our fingers and that sort of thing to see if the baby is moving, which is us trying to see is the angle that we have you at, um, and like the, the position that you're in, is that working for pushing? Is this baby actually moving or do we need to switch things
1: up and try a different position? Mm -hmm what, at what point do you usually vacuum the baby out? Just like when the mom starts getting defeated or the so baby starts? there's a starts- ton of reasons. Yeah. So forceps and vacuums,
0: um, they have a, a bunch of different indications. Uh, one being maternal exhaustion. Absolutely. Sometimes moms will say, I am so done. I've been pushing, I'm exhausted. Especially if you've had like a two day, three day long induction, no sleep, you're just toast. Um, so that's one reason another reason is fetal distress so if we're watching the heart rate and either it's super low or it's super high and we just need to get that baby out as soon as we can to make sure they're okay and do any like potential like resuscitation that we need to do um you know that's another reason um yeah those are kind of those are kind of the main ones there's other complicating factors that might factor into that like if the mom has a fever Um, if there's meconium, if it's been a really long labor, Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's some other indications for sure. Um, But yeah, maternal exhaustion is definitely one and pretty common. Yeah. But we, we, we would, and then, yeah, we make a decision based on, um, you know, together with the part, the patient and the partner. Um, if they would prefer an assisted delivery versus a C-section and sometimes it's safer to do a C-section versus a assisted delivery. And sometimes it's safer to do an assisted delivery, um, depending on how low the baby is, because sometimes if you do a a C-section and the baby is already like super low down there, it's actually really hard to pull the baby out from above because they're already kind of like stuck in that birth canal. So that's an instance where maybe the assisted delivery is is the better option, Um, but then there's other instances where it's like, this baby's not going to fit even with a vacuum or forceps. And in that instance, then obviously the C-section has to happen. And sometimes, you know, these women will get to 10 centimeters dilated and then they'll push for four hours and that baby is still like sky high. And and then we have to do, yeah. And then we have to do, um, do a C-section for reasons like that. So there's a lot, again, like there's a lot that goes, into that and you just have to, you know, ask the questions and, and, you know, be well informed about what the options are and, and why, like, I think That's... it's important to kind of understand the why, the why of, you know, cause sometimes people come in and they say, I don't, whatever, whatever happens, I don't want to vacuum or forceps. I'd rather have a C-section, but sometimes it is, you know, a safer option to do that mm-hmm. vacuum and forceps. And there's a lot of, um, Kind of misconceptions about the use of vacuum and forceps, um, kind of from like when you and I were born, like that kind of generation. Um, but the, the use of those instruments has come a really long way. So if that's being recommended to you, I mean, again, every case is different and trust yourself and ask your questions, but it has come a long way. And I, you know, I personally would not feel super worried about, about that. Mm-hmm. Um, at the, it doesn't you know, hurt at this time. Yeah. So I'm really curious cause you did not have an epidural. So, and yeah, like how
1: is your experience having an assisted delivery without anesthesia? Yeah. You know, I think at that point I was just like, get, get him out. So yeah, the doctor ultimately came in. I was with my midwife the majority of the time and she came in and she did the vacuum and, I felt pressure and it's funny because I think people are so scared of the baby coming out. And this is what I always heard is that, Oh, the baby coming out, that doesn't hurt. It's the contractions that hurt. I was like, yeah, I'm sure it doesn't hurt, but really it didn't hurt. It feels like a pressure release once they're actually coming out. Um, And it is the contractions that hurt. So really I didn't feel, it wasn't painful. It just felt like this big release of, of pressure. And he had a cone head for a second. I didn't see it. My husband did. Mm -hmm. When they like pulled him out but yeah it was it was fine at that point it was just it was so needed I was like anything
0: <laughs> anything yeah. help me please stop uh, yeah and you know that's exactly what it's like it, it's like a, a bare release of pressure and you feel relief like you're like the people without us telling them the baby's out they know like they're like oh my gosh thank god you know yeah um, yeah so that's great and then you said one of, oh the cone head um Regarding that, yeah, it's anybody who pushes for a long time, um, that baby's gonna have kind of a bit of a cone head just from from being stuck in that birth canal for an extended period of time. Their heads are designed to mold like that, um, and so that's you know that's totally fine. It goes away within a couple of days. You don't have to panic. Your baby's not gonna stay looking like that, and it's not always like a perfectly symmetrical cone head. Sometimes it's kind of like off to the left. Like it looks like they've got like a little horn coming off on the left or something like that, or the right or the back front, like smooths it out the forehead. And it just depends on what way they were facing in your pelvis so that what direction that had was kind of getting molded into. Mm,
1: okay. And fun fact for those listening, you do also have to birth your placenta, which mm-hmm. when they passed the baby to me, I was like holding it. and they're like, okay, Devin, like we have to birth the placenta. And I was like, <gasps> I like started having anxiety. I was like, is this going to hurt? And is this like, is this going to be painful after just like everything? And I honestly felt so good when that damn thing came out. I was like, oh, wow. <laughs> so it doesn't hurt. But I heard some people it does hurt. It depends. Like often it just comes out on its own. There's
0: not a lot that, you know, mom has to do like maybe like a couple little pushes, but often it just kind of like slides out and we're Mm -hmm. just, you know, and we just check it, make sure all the pieces of it come out. But yeah, definitely other times it kind of gets stuck in there and we have to like literally put our whole arm inside Mm and kind of like scoop it out. Other times we have to go to the OR and do like, um, an instrumental situation where we like, kind of like pull it out. through the vagina kind of thing so yeah there's um yes. yeah <laughs> there's a few options with but maybe more often me then. Than, yeah more often than not it just like kind of like flops on out and we just check it make sure it looks good and that's that yeah
1: and I will say is not cute <laughs> they they oh, the look freaky that looking that thing, thing. Yeah. like a big brain
0: oh it's super they're super creepy yeah I mean I don't even love like touching them but they're they're pretty interesting like mm-hmm. they're you know like how it works. And, and so, yeah, sometimes it is for, for certain people, they are really curious about it and they want to see like what part attached inside of your uterus, where was the baby chilling, see all the veins and like the umbilical cord, like where that comes out from they're, they're really interesting. They're amazing organs. Um, and that, you know, they, they feed your baby for all that time and help to create that life. Uh, uh-huh. So they're, they're amazing, but
1: they are definitely like, creepy looking brain things. It's a very, very (laughs) accurate depiction. Oh man. That's so funny. Okay. So I'm going to just spitfire a few of the uh, audience questions that are left here. Um, Someone said I broke my tailbone when pushing. Is that common or normal? Definitely. I would not say
0: it's common. A lot of people think that, or feel that their, you know, tailbone or their sacrum or their back is kind of bruised afterwards from all the pushing. And definitely from that baby, like I said, pushing down on that kind of along your rectum and along that whole back side of your spine. So the bruising can kind of be from like inside that baby, you know, hitting inside or from sitting in that same position for a long time.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: some things that you can do are put pillows behind your back and like behind your hips. So sometimes we'll put like one pillow vertically along your spine and then or like a pillow, like underneath a butt cheek kind of thing, just to kind of get that pressure off. So definitely you can do that during your labor um, and also during pushing.
1: Okay, and then I, I don't know if I'm gonna pronounce this, is it nitrous gas versus an epidural?
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so yeah, the nitrous gas or nitrous oxide is just laughing gas. Um, so laughing gas is a great option for pain relief, but it's really just going to take the edge off. Like, it's not going to make you numb. You're still going to feel every contraction. Uh, the way it works is you hold the mask to your face. um, when a contraction comes and you inhale and exhale into this mask, which some people find feels really claustrophobic for them. Like it takes a little bit of getting used to because you have to exhale back into the mask. Otherwise you're breathing out nitrous oxide to the whole room. And we're all going to be all loopy and laughing all together, (laughs) which is not really what you want. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a good option, especially at the end. Like if you're trying to have an unmedicated delivery and you kind of just need something to get you through that last few centimeters, then that's a really good option. But if you're three centimeters, it's your first baby and things are not moving along at a really great rate. You might have oxytocin on board, some things like that. Um, you know, it's not moving super quickly or anything like that, then that nitrous gas is not gonna be a super efficient option for you because it's not gonna, you know, it it won't give you that much pain relief. It's not gonna let you have any sleep or any rest. Um, And so that's where an epidural is like the perfect solution in some ways, Um, because with the epidural, um, you know, it kind of numbs you from like your waist down, Depending on how they're dosed, everybody's a little bit different. Anesthesia is different and different hospitals are different in terms of how they like to dose the epidural. Um, But, you know, it kind of just, you usually can still move your legs, that sort of thing, but you just can't feel any pain. Um, You can still feel pressure though. So an important thing to remember is that you can still feel pressure when you have a working epidural and that pressure can be uncomfortable especially like, depending on how the baby is positioned in your pelvis, it can cause that back labor and stuff. And so sometimes people still feel really uncomfortable pressure, but it's not taking away any sharp pain or sorry, it
1: is taking away sharp pain. Um, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, so what's the difference between back labor and I guess front labor.
0: Yeah. So back labor is really just Um, the the exact same thing. Like it's, it's all just all part of labor. It's really just back pain that's caused by your labor because of the way your baby is positioned. So you might have heard of babies being delivered sunny side up, um, or that's kind of like more, or occipit posterior or OP. Those are all synonyms for the same thing where the baby is positioned so that they're looking up like up towards mm-hmm. the ceiling. Mm-hmm. So their head's down in your pelvis, but they're looking up rather than looking at your, like at your back. When their face is looking up, their back is literally lining against your back. Mm-hmm. So when a contraction comes kind of around the front, it pushes that baby onto your back, which causes severe back pain. And that can be really, really uncomfortable for people. And an epidural can help with that. Okay um so can positioning like there's a bunch of different positions you can do to help relieve that one of them is leaning forward over a bed because it kind of um like the gravity pushes the baby away from your back and helps to spin the baby so again things that your like midwife or your nurse can help with in that situation but yeah that's kind of where the difference i guess between the epidural and the nitrous gas um and just so, like something that's kind of interesting is about eighty-five percent of our patients get epidurals. Okay. So sometimes that's people feel like a failure if they get one, um, or they're really hesitant to get one, for for various reasons. But just know that, like, over eighty percent of of patients in in the places I've worked. So I've worked in at Mount Sinai in Toronto, um, South of campus in Calgary. And then I've also worked in Rochester, New
1: York, and it's always about 80% plus. That makes me sad that people feel that way because it 1000% does not make you a failure to get an epidural. I think, you know, the best thing to do is to go in without expectations and, I think it makes it harder if you're like, I don't want an epidural. I don't want a C-section. I don't want this. I want to, you know, it's like everybody has a different birth plan, but I feel like you have to go in with the mindset that that might not go the way you want it to go and you'll get through it. Right. But it's just, it makes it tough when people have these expectations because you really can't anticipate like what's going to happen.
0: Yeah. So yeah, exactly. Like, thank you for saying that. That's exactly true. Um, you know, there's kind of like a a joke, I guess, among like on our unit because if you come in with a really formal birth plan that says I don't want forceps, I don't want an epidural, I don't want a C-section, I don't want this, I don't want that, inevitably those are all going to end up happening because it's just like this weird Murphy's law thing, you know. <laughs> so the best thing you can do is kind of go in there with, you know, the expectation of a healthy mom and a healthy baby and that trusting your providers advocating for yourself listening to your gut like you know asking questions being an active participant so that you feel well informed and and like you're you know like yeah like you've got control and um and that sort of thing and and then I think that's the best you can do because if you do go in with a really hard lined plan you might come out disappointed and that's that's really upsetting for sure. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. And I think something that helped me too is I think it was another hockey wife, but they told me to go in with the mantra. My baby and I are working together to meet each other or like to meet each other. And, um, I felt like that really helped me. And I kept saying that to myself, even the amount of pain I was in, but I was like, okay, we're working together to like be able to meet for the first time. Is there any mantras that you like to tell your patients as they're in labor? Yeah, no, like, we definitely
0: will say, like, you're strong, you can do this, you are doing this, like, you're moving that baby, um, like, you're doing everything you can for your baby, um, those sort of things. There's not one thing that I, that I say routinely, um, but there, now that, like, you asked me that, there are definitely things that I say, Mm -hmm. I guess, regularly, but there's, you know, yeah, it, it kind of depends on, on how in control, the, the woman is during, during the experience. Right. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of like, you've got this, you can do this. You are doing this.
1: You're strong. Like you're powerful, that sort of stuff. Yeah. And I want to say thank you for, for doing that because I feel like that's very helpful when you are in labor is to be encouraging like that, because sometimes if you don't feel, if you feel discouraged, you need that to help get you through. One more question. So, um, someone asked, I just got a job on a labor and delivery unit. Do you have any advice for me? Have a great time. (laughs) No, I, it's just like the best
0: place to work. I, I love it. It's, you know, the one place in the hospital where people are excited to be there generally, you know, and, and they leave really happy. Um, you know, with this great little gift. So, um, I love that. So I hope she enjoys it. Um, the only advice I have for her is to really ask questions and like lean on your superiors or your coworkers, whether that's senior nurses, medical residents, midwives are an amazing resource, like nurses and midwives. Um, I wish kind of collaborated more even in school because I wish that we think they have so much to learn or like, sorry, we as nurses have so much we can learn from midwives as well. Mm -hmm. And definitely like, don't be afraid to ask questions to the obstetricians. Like, you know, I've learned so much just from saying like, can you explain that to me? Or can you explain your logic? Or like, you know, I check a cervix and I think, okay, I can't tell like how many centimeters she is and asking a senior nurse or or a physician to come in and double check. Like just basically don't be afraid, like, you know, leave your pride at home and come in and just, uh, yeah, be, be open to learning. There's a lot to learn. And other thing I would say to her is, um, you know, you're not gonna feel comfortable And you're going to be really nervous and really stressed and terrified every single day that you go to work for probably the first two years, like definitely one to two years of, of working in that environment. Cause it's, it's really hard to learn because everything is so different, every Mm -hmm. birth, right? So like one day you're like, okay, like that went really well. And then the next day
1: it's just a total shit show. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, okay, I think I got it now. And then it's a totally different. Yeah. You're like, what.
0: Wait, I thought that like you know this when this happened last week this is what we did and now the obstetrician's saying no we're not going to do that we're going to do this and so there's a lot to learn and it's constantly evolving you know the research and all that so you know things we talked about today might not be as true next year like it's mm-hmm. just yeah it's it's a really interesting place to work very so rewarding
1: if you could give a mom in labor or a soon-to-be mom any advice what would it be?
0: Hmm. Um, I think just, I've said it a few times, right? Like trust yourself, um, listen to your gut. You know, if, if you're at home and something just doesn't feel quite right, go into triage, get checked. You don't have to be scared uh, or embarrassed to go in and ask, you know, ask those questions, no matter how silly or, you know, obvious they might seem to you, just ask them. You'll have lots to learn. And my, my number one thing that I tell my girlfriends is that your nurse or your midwife, whoever's kind of in there with you most of the time, um, is your best resource. So if you're feeling really anxious and, you know, you're sitting there on your cell phone and you're firing texts back and forth with your mom or with your girlfriend at home, um, definitely like express all of that to your nurse because, or your midwife, because they are, they can, they can help you with that, right? Like more than the people at home. Mm-hmm. So whether it's anxieties and your your just, your mind's racing, like let, let those feelings out. And hopefully you have a, have a good nurse generally. Um, you know, we get really good feedback on, on the nurses that staff these sort of units. So, you know, hopefully you have a really good relationship with that person and they can help you with that.
1: Yeah. And I feel like it really bonds you too to the people that are in the room when you give birth to your child, because they went they were with you through like a crazy life experience. And I know that I will never forget my midwife and my doctor just for all of their help and encouragement and everything um, while I was going through that. So I just want to thank you for everything that you do. And it sounds like you have such an amazing job. It's just quite an experience and different every day. And I'm sure it keeps you on your toes, but you're great at what you do. And you answered all of these questions perfectly. And I feel like I learned a lot today just by talking to you. Yeah, for sure. Well, it was, it was really nice to talk about, like, I'm, I'm over in here in
0: Munich, so I'm not working right now. And, and I definitely really miss it. Um, and yeah, it, it's a very rewarding job. And it's, it's nice to hear stories from, from people like you who, who say that they'll always remember their midwife or their nurse um, from, from that birth and their birth story. And, and I love that. I, I love knowing that, you know, there's, there's people out there who, who will hopefully have um, positive memories of, of my experience with them.
1: Yeah. And if someone wants to reach out to you, if they have questions, where can they find you?
0: Yeah. Oh, definitely. Like, I love talking about this. I could talk about it. You and I could do it to like a four hour long <laughs> podcast. Oh, Yeah. So I'm happy to answer people's questions. Again, I can't provide medical advice, but if you know if you have questions that are just eating you up and you just want to ask an LD nurse or something, you know that are keeping you awake at night, definitely message me. Um, my Instagram is just the letter N, the letter K, and then my last name, which is Quinn. So just N K Quinn, and yeah, that's it. <laughs>